The Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. The Viewpoint. Weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. Songhez on The Viewpoint. Sipuma Chiwana. For all you Tosa speakers who have got stiff tongues, it means an orphan. That's the language of the people. That's the language of Sipedi, Mayor Judith Supuma. Good evening, Mbusi. Good evening, Newo. Good evening, Sello. Good evening, Meminele. Good evening, SL. Good evening, Lubabalo. Good evening, KGM. It's the 28th day of May, 2019. 
today marks, of course, for those who don't know, the beginning of Child Protection Week, and it's going to be a very useful topic in the context of what we will be talking about later this evening, immediately after the ad break at 20 past, the socio-economic impact of remand detention in the Western Cape, focusing on the Africa Criminal Justice Reform's recently released report, Liberty Not the Only Loss, the Socio-Economic Impact of Remand Detention in the Western Cape. And to talk to us about that will be Ms. Jean Redpath as well as Ms. Claire Ballard of the Dallaoma Institute at the Western Cape University and Lawyers for Human Rights, respectively. Stay tuned. It promises to be wonderful. The reason why I read out those names because they were the ones who told us what they wanted and I'm trying my level best to give them what the listeners want because it's less about those who speak and more about those to whom we speak. And more importantly, this is SAFM leading the conversation. Welcome to this The Viewpoint. Song is Amapetra, your host to the lines. 0891104207. Please give us a call about anything that might move you or that might sufficiently trigger questions that you might want or need answered. Voice notes, your contributions are always welcome. 0614104107. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after this. 2019 is a big year in the global sporting calendar. More importantly, it's the biggest year in South African sport. Our national teams will be writing their names in the history books of sport. Cricket starts us off this May, followed by our football brothers and sisters reporting for country duty. And South Africa have their first goal! A glorious moment! The netball ladies will take on the baton and carry our flag high. Finally, closing off the year on a high note with the Springboks in the land of the rising sun in Japan. South Africa are the champions. They've created their own bit of history and the whole of South Africa will be delighted. It's time to rally behind your national teams and unite behind the green and gold. Hashtag Fabric of the Nation. Wear your national team jersey in support of your favorite national team sport. Every Friday, starting from the 17th of May. Hashtag Green and Gold Fridays. SABC Sport. For the love of the game. Hashtag Bava. My favorite drama is on. Huh? Kava. Yeah. Tembi just discovered that all the money has been stolen. Now, Sipo is a suspect. Gaga, did you just say hashtag Kava? Yeah, as in look, like hashtag Kava. How easy, convenient and fast it is to receive your TV license statement and pay electronically. That's great, Gaga, because you will never miss an episode of your favorite drama. Because you can do it all while sitting on your couch. Hashtag that. Pay your TV license the simple way. Go to tvlic.co.za. SABC TV licenses. Hashtag made possible by you. SAFM leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. On The Viewpoint. The Africa Criminal Justice Reform released a report titled Liberty Not the Only Loss, the Socio-Economic Impact of Remand Detention in the Western Cape. It investigates the socio-economic impact of remand detention at Polesmore Remand and Polesmore Female Prisons in the Western Cape. The report further focuses on accused persons held in remand and the impact on their families and dependents. The results show that the detention on remand of detainees has a measurable impact on the families and households of detainees, reducing incomes, depleting savings, often plunging families into debt, impacting on children and forcing the sale of assets. All in all, it creates a downward spiral of the socioeconomic strength of families at any given time because of perhaps misalignment in the criminal justice system and more about that we are joined by Ms. Jean Redpath who was there at the launch of that report and who is a researcher at the Dalla Oma Institute at the University of the Western Cape. Good evening Jean, how are you? Good evening together, fine and you? Very well, thank you. Before we get to this report, perhaps we need to educate a few people who might have forgotten about this doyen of the struggle, Mr. Dalla Oma, a human rights activist, a lawyer par excellence, former minister of justice and somebody who has given much to this country, who sadly didn't see much of this democracy, passed away in 2003. Do you want to tell us more about the legacy of Dalla Oma? Um, certainly. Uh, he was very active in actually writing our constitution, in which um, we have the rights that we will be looking at tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, very important rights that uh, really guide most of our constitutional development in, in, in our state today. 
And that's, that's really the main legacy, and it's the reason the Community Law Center, which our unit was previously called, changed its name to the Dalla Omar Institute to honor that legacy. And I remember one time, I think it was the inaugural lecture, or it was the eighth, I'm not too sure, President Tabo Mbeki even um, went and honored this great name that is Mr. Dalla Omar by giving and addressing the community of Western Cape in the annual lecture. Yes, we have very many um, uh, very high-up people who come and honor the Institute every year in our, in our lectures, and we're very grateful for their continued support. Sure. In a sentence or two, perhaps, just to place, say, to the balance of this discussion, could you give us a brief overview of what the Dalla Omar Institute at the University of the Western Cape does and what it looks to do? Sure. Um, so we have a number of uh, institutes, um, a number of units within the Institute. Um, our unit that was responsible for this report is called Africa Criminal Justice Reform, and yes. we focus on reform of criminal justice systems, not just in South Africa, but across the, across the continent. Obviously, we have certain countries that we concentrate in that, that's easiest for us to work in. But we also have other units, one which focuses on multi-level government, another one which focuses on socioeconomic rights, and another one which focuses on children's rights. So we really, so the overall aim of the Institute is to promote constitutional law, governance, and human rights, um, not just in South Africa, but across the continent. And of course, what you encounter, for the most part, certainly, are gross violations of the Constitution's um, obligations that ought to be met by the public sector, or those to be implemented by those who are custodians of prison rights or prisoner rights? Yeah, so, I mean, South Africa has made a lot of progress uh, in, in, in achieving the, the vision of, of our Constitution. However, there are still grave problems um, throughout, in particular, the criminal justice sector. And one of those problems is uh, impunity. So what we mean by impunity is where where there are violations or where rights have been infringed, those responsible are, are not brought to account and are not brought before the justice system to account for those violations. We had a discussion earlier, um, or not even, this time last month, incidentally, with the Minister of Justice, as he then was, Advocate Masuta, talking about that part of the world, in particular, Polsmore Prison, following the report, drafted by Justice Edwin Cameron. I'm sure this report contemplates some of the findings of that prison visit by Justice Edwin Cameron. And that report laments a lot of the problems are associated with overcrowding. Did you encounter that? And what can you tell us more about this phenomenon of overcrowding in prisons? Certainly, well, Justice Cameron's report um, was was performed part of the, the emphasis of a case brought by Sanke Gender Justice, and Sanke joined us in launching the report this morning, yes. um, where the state was actually ordered by the court to bring overcrowding down from over 200% to 150% in Polsmore in particular. Mm. Now, this study that, that we launched today wasn't in particular about um, overcrowding or the conditions of detention. What it was looking at was the associated impact on families and dependents who have to step in um, when people are detained awaiting trial. So what happens is if somebody is arrested, they, they either get detained on remand at, at a place like Polesmore Remand, or they can pay bail, and if they appear in court, uh, they, they will then be tried. If they don't appear, then the bail is forfeited. Now, what, what, what we've seen happening and what we saw in the data that, that we were able to collect in this report is that we would hope that remand detention of this kind is used for the most serious offenders and for those who pose the most risk. And what we see in the profile of people is a large proportion of people um, are actually income earners for their, for their families. They are not accused of particularly serious crimes. And we have to remember here that we're talking about remand detention, so these people haven't been convicted of any crimes as yet. And we know from other data that about half of them will never be convicted of any crime. So what we're concerned about in this report is we have these very serious impacts on families where 
the, the, the duration, the median duration, that's the middle figure, is 70 days. So one has people going into remand detention uh, for a significant amount of time. They lose income, they lose jobs, their families suffer. Their families have to step in. Because of overcrowding, many things are not available in prison. The families have to bring it to prison. So, in fact, they are, in effect, subsidizing the imprisonment uh, of their family member. And this is of, of, of serious concern. And obviously overcrowding exa- exacerbates that. So what we would like to see is that remand detention is used only when absolutely necessary and for the shortest possible duration. And what we can see from the, the information that we have available is that that is not happening at the moment. Assist the listeners at home. Today, the report, Liberty Not the Only Loss, the Socioeconomic Impact of Remand Detention in the Western Cape, was launched just today in Spin Street in the CBD. And Jean Redpath was one of those panelists alongside Lucas Mutting, Ebenezer Durajay, as well as Zia Vassaman Asanka Justice Center, specifically focusing on not just the loss of freedom, in that you are now locked up, so to speak, or detained, but the socioeconomic impact. I guess the question then is, in the first place, why the commissioning of this report? What was the trigger in the ordinary work of the Dalla Omar Institute that saw the need to come and investigate this particular area of the socioeconomic enterprise of prisoners? Well, it was actually an issue initially raised by the Special Rapporteur on Poverty, uh-huh. um, who theorized that there would be this impact, and a number of studies were done in West African states to provide the evidence to, to buttress the theory. Those studies in West African states, we were involved in in, the, in in that we analyzed the data that came available. And then we did studies in um, Kenya, Zambia, and Mozambique. Um, and they all support the contention that it is predominantly ordinary income-earning people who are detained pre-trial and that their detention has a, a very serious economic consequence for their families and for their dependents and for those that they are associated with. And so we can't assume that that is true um, in every country. We might find different trends in different countries. And so this, this, this study was then commissioned for the Western Cape, and Polesmore was chosen because of its uh, particular notoriety um, and because it is the largest prison in the Western Cape. In fact, it drives the remand population in the Western Cape. And so we wanted to see if those trends could indeed be said to be more, more generally spread other than the three countries that we'd already studied. Most certainly. Thank you so much, Jean. Hold the line. We're going to have to take a quick ad break. I just wish to advise the listeners at home, we're talking about the socioeconomic impact of remand detention in the Western Cape, but not necessarily the Western Cape, but more broadly in our society so as to bring in the other nine provinces in this country. If at all you have any relationship with a person who is detained for whatever reason, and it's less about that, but rather how the socioeconomic impact is felt by you who is not remanded, but nonetheless feels as though the system impacts him or her because of now the increased responsibilities, the loss of assets and the loss of income as a result of the criminal justice system because you have a loved one or a very close person otherwise who's part of the criminal justice system. We're taking your calls on 891 Please drop us your voice notes on 614 Hashtag SAFM Viewpoint. My name is Song as I'm back there. We will be back right after this break. Have you ever thought about organ donation? Only 1 in 10 South Africans waiting on transplant lists will receive the gift of life from a donor. Catch 1,000 Lives on SABC2 every Saturday at 6 p.m. Featuring authentic and heart-wrenching stories of donors and their recipients. Brought to you by SABC Education. Enriching minds, enriching lives. Dr. Mindy Lahiri is a talented obstetrician with a chaotic personal life who struggles to find the perfect relationship, remain focused at work, stay current on reality TV, and channel her inner warrior, Beyonce Pad Thai. She shares her practice with three doctors, one who is in an on-and-off relationship with Mindy, the other who is the resident punching bag, and the frat boy who knows nothing about the opposite sex. The Mindy Project starts Friday, 10 May at 8.30 p.m. only on SABC3. SAFM, leading the conversation. 
Call Songhez or now 0891-104-207. We're in conversation. Good evening, South Africa. 28th day of May, first day of Child Protection Week, and the interests of children certainly will feature in the context of this discussion tonight. Liberty, not the only loss, the socio-economic impact of remand detention in the Western Cape. And to tell us more about that is one of the panel members who was launching that report earlier today in Cape Town, Ms. Jean Redpath, who's a researcher at the Della Omar Institute. And she's willing to take your calls on 891 or she's happy to listen to your voice notes and reply to them to the extent that she can. 614-104-107. Jean, let's talk about now some of the critical issues. The results show that the detention of remand of detainees has a measurable impact on the families and households of detainees, reducing income, depleting savings, often plunging families into debt, impacting on children, and we'll talk about children specifically later on, and forcing the sale of assets. How deep is this issue? How deep is this problem? Well, certainly, so, I mean, the the studies showed that uh, contrary to expectation, um, the detainees, remand detainees, were somewhat older than people imagined. So they were around 28 uh, was the median age. So that is a prime income earning age. Um, the vast majority were employed at the time, or employed or and or earning an income, because we know that in South Africa today many people earn incomes outside of formal employment. Mm-hmm. Um, they were contributing a large proportion to the household in which they lived uh, uh, resources. And so you can imagine when they are detained, um, that has an impact on on, in terms of the incomes that the families uh, have. And what we find is other people, in particular uh, the women in the household, because it's mostly men who are detained, having to step in, having to, to create funds, having to spend a lot of their time and resources in some instances, and losing their own income in order to visit, in order to bring food, in order to bring resources to the to the person who is detained. And so we see it as part of what is a cycle of impoverishment that happens because it's not the most wealthy who end up in remand detention. If you or I are arrested uh, at a roadblock uh, or uh, at a, for driving negligently or something like that, Mm. We will immediately phone a lawyer. Um, there's no entitlement to after-hours bail, but there is a provision for prosecutor bail. We'll, very soon, we, we will have a lawyer, we'll have assistance, we'll, we'll be out. But for other people who are arrested for quite trivial things, which may include a small amount of dacha on them, they might uh, they will end up uh, incarcerated. And, and we were quite surprised at the number of people who said they had not received um uh, legal assistance of any kind, and it's a, it's a kind of a cycle of, of impoverishment. And it, when when funds have to be raised to pay mm. for private legal defence, which many people were doing, they then had to borrow funds from other places, from friends and family. Very few were able to borrow from a bank. Um, then that money has to be paid back. The average amount being paid back per month was between two thousand and four thousand rand a month. And so it's a it's a cycle of, of impoverishment that 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 arises. Now, obviously, and there are some yeah. people who should be remanded in detention, and, we, and we're not arguing about that. What we're yeah, talking yeah. about is that when decisions are made, uh, it must be taken into account that it's not just affecting uh, the person who's detained, but there's a broader ecosystem which is also going to be affected by the detention if it is so ordered. And what we're also worried about is uh, an issue of when someone's bail application has not yet even been heard. In South African law was changed in around 1998, such that bail applications can be postponed for seven days at a time. So what we're seeing in the data is a good proportion of people who have not even had their bail application heard, and they are sitting in remand. There's another good proportion of people who... Have not are not immediately able to raise the funds to pay for the bail, and so in these situations, the court has decided that this person should be released pending trial, but the funds cannot be raised uh, to immediately. So they they would spend some time while the families are rushing around trying to raise the funds uh, to get them released. And so we see it's not just people who've been denied bail who who are in remand. It's it's a it's a broader problem. 
and it's rooted in the changes to the legislation that happened in the late 1990s. I'm interested in the fingerprint of the nature of the persons who are these accused persons held in remand. This is the background to this question. I was watching Netflix not so long ago, and there's a documentary on there. It's called 13th Amendment. The United States, for argument's sake, has a prison population of one in four of the world. In other words, for every four prisoners in the world, one of them is from the United States, which is disproportionate to its population in the world, sitting only at 5%. Now, of that 25% of the world's population being in prison, something like 60 to 65% are African-American males. And that continues certain cycles within the socioeconomic landscape of America. Now, from a South Africa perspective, do you have any statistics that might tell us as to how this criminal justice system affects who in terms so of such statistics the, demographically? The, the Department of Correctional Services, um, up until about 2012, used to provide a breakdown of a snapshot uh, of who was in prison right now by age group, um, by uh, whether they were on remand or whether they were sentenced, and also by race. However, they have not, since around 2012, um, continued to publish that data. Um, the data that we had sight of did not um, uh, identify the race of the person involved. However, we can make inferences from um, where they lived, or, or and we can also recall the data from 2012. And what that generally shows is, for one thing, the Western Cape is disproportionate in terms of its imprisonment in the South African context, so we imprison at a slightly higher rate. Um, the remand proportion compared to the sentence proportion is slightly higher in the Western Cape. Um, the, 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 the categories that are... So because our, our, our population is very much um, the majority of our population are black people. We see the same thing in, in prison system. However, in the Western Cape, we do see from the 2012 da- data an over-representation in particular of colored people. Um, so that's a, a different scenario from the uh, situation in, in, in America because uh, we have these, these different racial categories. Sure. Um, however, that data is, as I said, going back to around 2012. Granted, but it wouldn't be too dramatically different in the seven years, given the fact that it would Certainly have been correct not. as and, of 2012. And what we see is that, um, you know, that, that, that cycle of, of deprivation, certainly in the qualitative information that we have, um, particularly populations from the Cape Flats, they, they are subjected to this very high rate of imprisonment, which is sometimes associated with, with gang activity, but we also see it with very trivial offences, much more trivial offences, and not always related to gang activity. And what we saw coming out of the data was clearly a differential form of policing uh, depending on where you are mm-hmm. arrested. So if you are arrested for two stops of Dhaka in Athlone, something different is going to happen to you if you're arrested in Rondebosch, and something different is going to happen to you uh, if you are arrested in um, Philippi. So what we see is a kind of a unequal justice, which is more about spatial geography um, than anything else. Let's talk about then the kinds of offences, because I mean, you're talking about particular offences. Let's talk about the schedules. Granted, your schedule five offences and your schedule six offences would merit detention or at least some form of remand. But your schedule one offences, your schedule two offences, not in the least. Have you got a sense as to the types of scheduled offences the remanded or the detained persons are at least accused of committing? So when we look at the admissions profile, so this is a this is a different profile from a snapshot. When you look at a snapshot, mm-hmm. you look at who's in prison right now, um, and that is strongly influenced by people who are there for longer durations. When you look at the admissions profile, you look at the flow through the prison. So that gives you an idea of, of the number of people who are exposed to prison, and in that that profile looks very different from the snapshot profile. And on that profile, which in this data um, was 
from about a year and a half ago. Um, the number one offence that comes through is theft. Now, this is not robbery, so theft is theft without mm-hmm. any uh, violence associated with it. If there was violence associated, it would be classified as robbery. And the number two um, most frequent uh, admission was for mere drug possession. So this is not selling drugs, this is possessing drugs. And we know from other data that 99.9% of that is marijuana. It's not uh, anything more serious than that. And um, of course, to, yeah. So, and, and of course, some of these detained persons have done absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, you couldn't have missed what would have happened at Sea Point sometime last week to one Miss Essay Tumtinjana, who was detained simply because of being. I don't know yes. if you're aware of that. Now, such instances obviously lend um, strength to this report. How many times could you have encountered incidences like that and more particularly directed at police behavior or officials' behavior in creating more of this issue? So so remand detention uh, has, happens after someone has already been arrested and then the court will then have to mandate that they go to a prison. So um, luckily in that instance, my understanding is that it was only a period in police detention, which is bad enough and and an infringement of liberty enough. But what we're looking at here in our study is the second step. So you spend some time in police detention and then you go to prison. So police behavior does drive uh, a lot of that and it actually depends on the courts to to ameliorate that behaviour and to say actually this is not something, and it depends on the national prosecuting authority to also say to recommend whether someone should go to prison or not, to to say whether they uh, oppose bail or not, and so on. So there are other players that come into play um, after the initial arrest, but that time in police detention is also of great concern because that is um, very much not regulated and there's a lot of abuses that can happen at that point. All right. Thanks, Jean. Let's just quickly cross over through to Claire Bollard. She's a lawyer at Lawyer for hu- Lawyers for Human Rights, I beg your pardon, and she's the head of the Prisoners' Rights Litigation Program. Good evening, Claire. We're having a conversation with Jean, specifically the Dela Omar Institute's recently released report through the Africa Criminal Justice Reform. That report is titled, Liberty Not the Only Loss, the Socioeconomic Impact of Remand Detention in the Western Cape. You've done a lot of work in this regard. I mean, she mentioned the case of Songa Justice Coalition taking on the government of the Republic of South Africa. Do you want to comment very broadly as to what you take as a sense from this entire study? Good evening, Sangeza. Thank you very much. I think, I mean, the, the the information that has that has come out of this report is is vital because it 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 shows, um, you know, with the backing of of an empirical study, what we intuitively know to be true, which is which is that the, the criminal justice system is, is targeting and has a profound effect, much more so, mm-hmm. on the lower-income earners in our country than, than anyone else. Um, yes. And the knock-on effects of that, as Jean has said, are, are profound. Um, yes. Yes. And, and we see this in a, in a, in a burgeoning remand population. And, and, and which, 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 given the state of the criminal justice system, shows no sign of, of abating. And what Jean earlier said was the fact that bail applications are postponed, people are not appearing before magistrates on time, and basically they are being remanded. Well, she didn't use the word indefinitely, but it may as well be indefinitely without having the opportunity to clear themselves because charges have not been brought or have not been brought on time, and they're not given a sufficient opportunity to argue their matter as to why they shouldn't be detained or otherwise remanded. That, that's certainly the case, and, and if I can add on to that, Songeza, we, we see um, people being remanded for a very long time, um, and I and I think what what ultimately serves as a as a justification for um, a, a, a denial of bail or, or continued remand um, at the early stages um, of an investigation are no longer sufficient justification as the passage of time goes on. Um, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that there's a duty mm. on the prosecution and certainly the, the magistrate to interrogate the, the progress of, of, of the investigation um, to, to diligently and efficiently um, pro- proceed with, with the prosecution. 
Um, and, and what we see is endless continuations and endless remands simply for, for um, further investigation. Um, they, surely there must be a point at which that reason is no longer sufficient to detain someone longer than three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. Because you are the head of the prisoners' rights litigation program, so you would obviously know what the litigation structure looks like. Do you just want to um, establish, I beg your pardon, establish the distinction between where the police work ends and where the province of the National Prosecuting Authority kicks in? Because it sounds like from this discussion, the challenges, at least as it pertains to the enterprise of criminal justice, this is something which the NPA ought to look at and look at very intensely. Certainly. Yeah. Look, Sankeza, I mean, we have to certainly acknowledge that there is some overlap, that, that, that prosecutors do have a, a measure of oversight um, and influence into investigations. Um, having said that, I, it, it, it's difficult to know. What we do know is that we are not doing particularly well at prosecuting crime. Right. I mean, Gene Redpath, previous Redpath has shown that, you know, the, the NPA currently is convicting Eight percent of recorded crime—that's pretty dismal. Um, and uh, I, we know that, for the most part, um, dockets get, um, they get ticked off the roll simply because um, there's insufficient. Well, they, what they say there's um, there aren't prospects of success on mm-hmm. uh, at, at prosecution. So, look, uh, essentially, it, it's a it's a detective's work to detect crime. Right. I mean, that sounds obvious, but it, it means that he or she must paint a complete picture of of what has happened, and and to the extent that a prosecutor can use that document success that docket successfully in court, a prosecutor receives a docket from the police, um, and if based on the contents of that docket he or she thinks um, the case can be won, that matter can proceed. That matter, that that docket is then called court ready. Um, if if he or she decides that. The, the the docket itself is incomplete or further work needs to be done, that must then go uh, back to the SAPS for further investigation. We often see dockets knocked back and forth between the NPA um, and the SAPS uh, um, for, for long periods of time, um, simply because the, the, the work the NPA would argue done by the SAPS is, is insufficient. Whether or not that is, that is true, you know, it's... It, it's impossible to say. But that's really what the relationship looks like at the moment and, and where the, the bottleneck and the frustration shows. Sure. Stay on the line, Claire. Please stay on the line, Jean, as you have been. We're in conversation with these two lovely ladies talking about the socioeconomic impact on remand detention in the Western Cape. Specifically, the Africa Criminal Justice Reform has released a report titled Liberty Not the Only Loss, the Socioeconomic Impact of Remand Detention in the Western Cape. Comments, questions, 891 WhatsApp, voice notes, 614 We'll be taking comments after the break. Please stay tuned. Hashtag Kava. My favorite drama is on. Huh? Kava. Yeah. Tembi just discovered that all the money has been stolen. Now, Sipo is a suspect. Gaga, did you just say hashtag Kava? Yeah. As in, look, like hashtag Kava, how easy, convenient, and fast it is to receive your TV license statement and pay electronically. That's great, Gaga, because you will never miss an episode of your favorite drama because you can do it all while sitting on your couch. Hashtag that. (laughs) Pay your TV license the simple way. Go to tvlic.co.za. SABC TV licenses. Hashtag made possible by you. SABC3 brings you season 32 of Survivor Kaurong. This season features players divided into three tribes of six based on dominant attributes brains, brawn, and beauty. It is known as the most punishing season of Survivor due to the record-breaking number of medical evacuations. Do not miss it. SABC3, Monday evenings at 7.30pm from the 13th of May. SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10pm. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhe Zomabete on SAFM.
That's right. Songa Zimabetle, 0891-104-207. What's a voice note? 0614-104-107. Ms. Claire Bollard, Lawyers for Human Rights, Head of the Prisoners' Rights Litigation Program there, as well as Ms. Jean Redpath, Dalla Omar Institute at UWC, UWC in the Western Cape, that is. She's a researcher. They're talking about prison rights. Liberty, not the only loss, the socioeconomic impact of remand detention in the Western Cape. This report, Jean, it's now been made available to the public. Ideally, who should be reading this report and what action should be taken as a result of its findings? Policymakers like uh, members of parliament would would have a look at it. Um, We would hope that magistrates who make decisions would take this kind of information into account. We know that when we've presented this kind of information in other countries, it has been influential in, in shifting attitudes particularly in countries which are which are very uh, take a very hard line on, on on any kind of crime, and when when they start sort of understanding that um, that we're talking about ordinary people who may or may not have committed a crime, um, and it might be a, a, a very a very small crime uh, if they are guilty, and it does begin to shift the way decisions are made. And what we what we would hope is that eventually um, we would be in a situation where we don't have the situation which we have at the moment, which is that every 10 years we would need to build another prison the size of Polesmore in the Western Cape alone to deal with the increase um, in remand only. And now this is not, as Claire was pointing out earlier, this is not because we are... Uh, arresting and remanding the right people because our convictions have absolutely collapsed. So what it's saying is that we are arresting a huge bunch of people whom the system is never going to be able to convict. And we don't know whether they're guilty or not. And so we are very concerned about the trends that we're seeing. Something like half of our convictions um, that we are able to achieve are only for drug possession. And these are not the serious violent crimes that we would hope that the criminal justice system would be spending its time and effort dealing with expeditiously. To what extent, if any, would this be attributed to state gentrification? In other words, certain areas being deemed and declared whites-only areas or a certain demographic, as was the case with S.A. Tumtlinjan. To what extent, if any, does your report uncover some of these things? Um, I can't really say that the report sheds much light on that. Um, I would say that what it really speaks to more is the, the profile of the person who will end up on remand. And what we, what, what we picked up in the study is that the very poor uh, will go to remand, but they won't be visited. So those people will be incredibly vulnerable. So their, their families cannot afford the taxi fare or the transport, they cannot afford to come regularly and support the people who are in prison. So those, so in, in other words, the, the, the detainee is kind of stranded there. Then you get the next category of people who are kind of not the poorest of the poor, but they're still uh, you know, relatively poor in, in, in the grander scheme of things, but their families have just enough money to continue to try to support them and to try to... Um, give give uh, uh, um, legal and other assistance and provide the things that the state is unable to provide while they are in detention. And then you have the other category, which is of the, the far wealthier uh, people, middle and upper class people, who simply will not be detained, even though detained before trial. Um, and we've seen um, some very yeah. like famous sort of. Um, rich white men being convicted of murder and they did not spend any time in detention before trial, the the vast majority. So there there is that kind of trend that comes out, but I think that that is primarily a function of access to resources, access to legal uh, assistance, and being Mm -hmm. able to pay uh, the, the money to the best lawyers in town I've got you. Let's take out. a call. Sorry, Jean, let me interrupt you. Let's take a call from Nonde calling us from Ebbaya Mambozini. Good evening, Nonde. Ungane. Yes, sir. Very well, thank you, sir. Gunjani. Let me be brutally honest about my comment. 
I yes. know that area fairly well. Which In one? In fact, UWC, Dula Oma, I know that area. I've been there doing some post-grad studies. Now, I am glad about what your guest is saying there, Jim. Now, within that university, there are two departments that can be of help going forward uh, for recommendations and getting to the solution of the problem. For example, there's a policy center there that does developing studies. There's also economic and management sciences that address the economic uh, problems of this issue. For example, if I take one suburb in Cape Town, Pinelands, right, you will find the crime is very low. You know, PT theft, you know, uh, drugs and whatever, precisely because in forest drive in that pineland, there are two retailers, I would mention them and give them free airtime. Both those retailers, they do not sell liquor. You will then find that in pineland, you will have very few people uh, working drunk uh, in the streets. Howard Center, Still, yeah? Howard Center right? in Pinelands, yes. Precisely because in these suburbs, right, unfortunately, the other race lives there. I'm talking about your Bishop's Court, Clifton, Kens Bay, Hart Bay, Ladatna, and so forth. You will not find the problem of crime there. And consequently, you won't find um, people staying in those areas being remanded in custody, people, I mean, being in detention, precisely because if you are remanded in custody or being detained, it follows, unfortunately, racial and class lines. Exactly as it does in America. In America, blacks would be in the minority, twelve percent, thereabout, but they are in the majority in prisons. Okay? Mm. In South Africa, whites are in the minority, they are also the minority in prisons. All right? So the fact that you are in the majority does not necessarily mean, you know, you should be in the majority even in prisons. Now in Cape Town, I'm not going to differentiate between colors and blacks, right? I mean, both of them during apartheid were oppressed, right? So, colors then and blacks, unfortunately, are in the majority in prisons, precisely because these race groups in that province especially, right, they've got the problems of drugs, you know, unemployment, uneducated, blah, 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 blah. You would find them then being in the majority in prisons. If you steal a chocolate, as you guess are saying, in Seapoint or Clifton or Kemsby, you are most likely to be arrested than if you steal the same stuff in Philippi or Kuguletu or Nyanga, Right? Indeed. Thank you so much. Quick response from you, Claire, before we cross over to, I mean, sorry, to Eugene, before we so, cross over um, to Claire. Um, that was a very interesting comment. So, um, Monde is correct that if you uh, commit a crime in places like Camps Bay and Seapoint, you will be arrested. And that is also related to the inequality of policing provision. Um, what we saw in the data that certain police stations even compared to the reported crime rate, were overrepresented as police stations from which the detainees, their case emanated from. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, all of those police stations were police stations which are served by so-called community courts, um, which are supposed to uh, assist with alternatives to imprisonment. So mm-hmm. what, we, what we actually see happening is that there seems to be a net-widening effect rather than alternatives happening. And so maybe we need to review that uh, particular intervention. Claire, let's talk about... Okay, we've got persons now who are in the criminal justice system, rightly or wrongly. The program that you had, Prisoners' Rights Litigation, how can it be supported by who to at least enable this traffic to move a lot quicker? Because... I mean, the socioeconomic plight of the persons who are caught up in this traffic jam, if you will, has got dire consequences for those who they leave behind at home, obviously, because we talk about reducing income, depleting savings, plunging families into debt, the impact on children in particular, and the sale of assets. So, you know, it's, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult question. I, I, I have to preface my answer by saying, firstly, that litigation is a last resort. I mean, my my job is to litigate, and I, with these large mm. scale issues, sort of um, caused by what are essentially systemic and ongoing issues that have you know very long and complicated histories. Yes, but you know, taking taking those those types of issues to court really are a last resort. Um, 
what what really needs to happen is is, is legislators need to listen. Um, you know, we we've been we've been saying these things for a very long time. Um, we know certain things for certain, um, and it's and it's it's fallen for the most part on deaf ears. I mean, on on the contrary, you see, you know, the um, this one of the the go to positions for pre-election politicking is the, is the criminal justice system. It's harsher sentence, harsher sentences. Um, you know, no bail. You know, we, we the, you know, the rallying cry always falls on, 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 the, on the criminal justice system. And I, and I think the, the, the distressing thing about that is that it's, it's, it's done despite us knowing the truth. Which, <laughs> Which is? is harsher sentences and, and no bail. That's absolutely nothing to the crime rate. Um, and I, so I think it's, it's time for politicians to start taking responsibility about telling their constituencies the truth about what we know about what, the truth about criminal justice, um, which is that it's not about harsh penalties. It's not about difficult bail. You know, it, it, these these things have absolutely no impact yeah. on on the, on the crime rate. And I, and I I think in, until we you know that the politicians start um, assisting the researchers with that message. Um, I am concerned that nothing will change. Um, it just, it right. just seems to be the sort of deep, default <clears throat> position for, for erosion as opposed to, to support. Yeah, that's a sobering remark that you make. But thank you so much, Claire, for your contributions. Um, we're going to ask Jean to stay on the line so that she can just dedicate the last four or so minutes to the impact on children in this entire landscape of things. Let's take a quick ad break before we talk about the impact on children as this is child protection week stay tuned on the viewpoint it's a pity we don't have as much time as we have but it is the beginning of child protection week and in the context of this particular study that you had commissioned jean redpath of the dalla Uma institute do you want to just spare a comment for children interests in the remaining sure, minute and a half please? so what we found was a significant in a significant proportion of cases there was both a change in the child care arrangements and uh, child behavioral problems were observed. So when we talk about care arrangements, in something like one in six situations, the children of a female detainee actually had to move their residence. They had to go and live somewhere else as a result of the detention. Now, that was not as common in relation to male detainees, Mm -hmm. but it was still something like one in ten uh, children of the detainees had to move um, where they lived. In another one in five of both male and female, we're looking at some kind of change in the care arrangement, so where the detainee would have provided some sort of care, now somebody else has to provide that care. Then we get as much as a quarter um, children's behavior. There was acting out. There was uh, um, upset as a result of the detention. And then um, we found a surprisingly high percentage in relation to male detainees where children started having problems at, at school uh, following the detention um, mm. of their parent. And so, and then a further, further 6% actually were now not going to school at all as a result uh, of the detention. So we can see that in those situations there is quite profound impact on children who, who are not to blame for any of this and um, those kinds of effects of missing school and having care arrangements change can have long-term consequences. Sure. No. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Jean. I beg your pardon. I wanted to say clearly. But thank you, Jean. Thank you, Claire, for your contributions this evening. We have to end it there because the top of the hour and Greg Close is ready with the news, but the Child Protection Week discussion will certainly carry on. And thank you so much for that step in the right direction, as it were, Jean Redbath. Della Omar Institute at the University of the Western Cape. It's time for news with Greg Close. Stay tuned.